Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Inside the Blue Jays podcast. I'm Mitch Bannon, I'm here with Ethan Diamandis, we're the two SI beat writers for Inside the Blue Jays. You can find our written work over at InsideTheBlueJays.com, but for 2022, Ethan and I decided we're going to take a stab at this whole podcasting thing. Uh, with all the news in the baseball world, we felt like this was the best time to get into it. Uh, but like our written coverage, we're going to try to cover the games, the players, and give really a, a beat writer's look at the Blue Jays organization. We've got a few things we can actually talk about today, some news. We'll talk about the international free agency period that opened up on Saturday. Uh, and we'll talk about the collective bargaining talks and how a new C CBA could impact the Blue Jays. And we'll end with a fun little segment about potential trade chips up and down the organization. Stick with us while we work out the kinks of this audio format. And thank you very much for joining the first ever episode of the Inside the Blue Jays podcast. All right, so welcome to the first ever ep episode. Uh, for the context of everyone listening, we're just coming off of the, the Cowboys 49ers game. It was a bit uh, of a sketchy ending, but my question for you, Ethan, off of that uh, is it was the, ML or the NFL Nickelodeon broadcast. Do you think that uh, MLB Nickelodeon broadcast would ever work, or is it not quite the same fan base? I think, I think it could work. You know, From what I see on Twitter, a lot of the, uh, the uh, reception to the Nickelodeon broadcast is positive, maybe uh, if ironic, but positive. Uh, so seeing Patrick Starr around the bases or, you know, SpongeBob waving a guy home at third base, I, I, I could, I could, I could roll with that. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. It's, they have the StatCast broadcast on ESPN. So maybe they can do the, the StatCast plus Nickelodeon broad, broadcast and get SpongeBob delivering the analytics or something. But uh, mm -hmm. we'll digress on the meme conversation and uh, we'll get into our first topic. So we finally got some news. It's been a bit of a dead period during the lockout. Uh, we had the international free agent signing period begin yesterday, and the Blue Jays rattled off a few signings that have not been made official yet. I expect those to probably get announced in the next few days. Uh, but those were headlined by Luis Meza. He was a Venezuelan catcher. These are all kind of teenagers. So for anyone who's not particularly familiar with this pro process, these guys are probably not going to get to the big leagues for maybe a half a decade. The fastest guys are going to be three or four years until they really get on our radar. But yeah, Meza was Baseball America's 11th player, number one catcher. He was a little lower on the MLB.com rankings. But do you have any kind of takeaways from this process, uh, Ethan? Yeah, I, I guess you could start by like contextualizing the uh, the signing period a little bit. So the Jays actually had the lowest uh, international spending pool, uh, along with the Dodgers. Um, the Jays forfeited a, a bunch of money when they signed uh, George Springer, who was qualified, and and the uh, the Dodgers when they signed Trevor Bauer. Um, so what stood out to me right away was that uh, Mesa, they used almost half their, their spending pool on him. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think he was the, yeah, tied for the second most or second most expensive uh, international free agent. Um, so that, that stood out to me immediately. Um, and he's also a catcher and, you know, the Jays have lots of catching depth. So that maybe gave me a bit of a chuckle, but they are still, these guys are still years away. Um, so, you know, maybe he won't stay at catcher, but from what you've heard, Mitch, uh, he's actually a pretty strong defensive catcher, right? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. One of their big gets in this window a few years ago was Gabriel Moreno, who I know people are probably pretty familiar with, but he was signed as an infielder, converted to a catcher, kind of starting to get his defensive skills going now. From what it sounds like and what I've heard and read on Mesa, he's a pretty good defensive catcher right now. He's got a good arm, good pop time. There's 
a few videos scattered across the interwebs uh, for people who want to check him out. He looks like a pretty good defensive catcher from everything I've heard and seen myself, which is kind of interesting for such a young kid. It'll be probably for like all good young defensive catchers, the bat that defines his path. It sounds like he's a pretty good contact guy right now. Like all teenagers, how they grow into their body, if they can develop power will also kind of define his ceiling. But yeah, I think the projectability behind the plate is the big reason he got the big bonus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely mentioned projectability. And if you read any of those blurbs done by by Baseball America or MLB.com, it's projectability about filling into a frame. You hear that, you know, with all the prospects. So right now, uh, Mesa is listed as 5'10", 150. Now that, that doesn't strike you as a very, very big dominant catcher type guy. He's just 17, right? And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Gabriel Moreno was listed as something similar like that. Not that he's like a, a dominant, you know, physical catcher. He's not a Matt Wieters. He's not 6'5", 230, 240. Um, but, you know, he was listed as 170 pounds too. So, you know, guys that maybe don't look like much. And we know that with uh, Alejandro Kirk, who don't exactly embody the stereotypical uh, baseball body, if there is one. Um, but those guys can, can definitely grow into their frame. And if he may just be 150 pounds now, but in five years, who knows, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, it's kind of interesting how you, they had this four and a half ish million dollars to spend. They pour this money into this guy, but a lot of these guys take very different career paths. You have guys who develop huge ceilings like Vlad Guerrero and Kirk, who we just mentioned, who become superstars or, or potential superstars, but then they're also like five years away from doing that. So who really knows with these guys? And it's kind of interesting that they poured a lot of the resources into this one kid. So they definitely see something. But there's a lot of things that can happen that can change that development path. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, they also signed a couple other big guys, right? There was one other guy in Baseball America's Top 50. Mitch, do you want to talk a little bit about him? Yeah, John Carlo Joseph was the other big guy. We didn't really think they were going to get anyone else big. Mesa was the only one that had been rumored for a while. Uh, this period was supposed to or normally would have happened in July of 2021. But then because of COVID and because of kind of uh, the weird situations on being able to scout these kids and get down there and officially sign them. They pushed it back to January, like last year's period. Uh, so we, we hadn't heard about this guy, John Carlo Joseph, but he was also in baseball America's top 50 Yeah, the 49th player. So sneaks right in the back there. But when you have a smaller bonus, you're giving so much to the first guy, getting anyone with any kind of name recognition or anyone that international scouts like is a big accomplishment. He's a uh, kind of similar to Mesa, he's a defensive first player. He's a 16-year-old, 165-pound outfielder, supposed to have really good instincts in center field, according to what I read, which a lot of this work is coming from guys like Ben Badler over at Baseball America. We're not doing our own scouting, so we'll, we'll shout out them. But yeah, he's another kind of toolsy defensive outfielder who they can dream on for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And there's, yeah, the, the Jays have their fair share of outfielders and, and I guess young projectable position players. So he'll slide in uh, as one of those guys too. Um, when I think of Toronto, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they've had pretty good success with the international free agents, you know, over the last, I guess, five or six years, right? Yeah, it's been very impressive. Six of their top 10 prospects right now, those international guys, and that doesn't count Alejandro Kirk and doesn't count that Vlad Guerrero Jr. So if you're taking those eight guys right there, who it's the, the obvious guys, the Moreno, the Arelvis Martinez is guys like that. It's a pretty good uh, group to pull from. And the more impressive thing is they're just going and finding these guys and signing them for $1 million, $2 million. So it's, if you want to build a sustainable winner, it's a really good avenue to go. And it's a really good road to go. Cause 
you just kind of have to dedicate the resources. You need the scouts down there to identify them, the people down there to kind of convince them to sign with you. And then you can get a potential superstar for $2 million. And there's, there's obviously some flaws that they might be identifying the CBA to, to get rid of this arguably exploitation or capping their value uh, for a lot less than they could actually uh, potentially earn on the open market or in some sort of draft situation. But it's not very equitable for everyone. So if you go get down there and beat out all the other teams for these potential stars, it's a great way to build a farm system like they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just you know, combing over their, their signings at, at the international level, uh, the international amateur level, rather, uh, over the last few years. So Manuel Beltre, he was their big one in 2021. And that was a little bit more than Mesa's uh, 2.05 million. Uh, nothing in 2020, uh, 2019. There were no no notable um, international free agent signings, but there was a Japanese signing uh, in a different sort of international system, and that was Shun Yamaguchi, and uh, that did not turn out so well. No, it didn't. I must have missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not uh, not remembered so fondly. Um, but before that, in 2018, they actually uh, they they did pretty well with Arelvis Martinez, and he signed at uh, about three and a half million dollars, which is for the Mesa and more comparable to uh, to about Vlad Guerrero Jr., who in 2015 they uh, they ponied up three point nine million dollars uh, to sign him at just 16 years old, and that one worked out a little bit better than Sean Yamaguchi. Yeah, I'd say Vlad's probably already delivered on the surplus value of that contract. I'm sure he could retire tomorrow and they'd be satisfied with that signing, despite probably not wanting him to retire anytime soon. But yeah, that just goes to show that like these are guys who would be going number one, number two, number three picks in uh, the North American draft or the Rule 4 draft. So I know there's talk of potentially making an international draft that could stymie the Blue Jays and I'm sure they wouldn't be particularly happy as an organization to lose this kind of funnel that they've had uh, but it, it is kind of interesting to see how this core is aside from guys like Bo Bichette and Nate Pearson and, and a few other guys on the roster is very much built from this international class. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned how things might change internationally and, and how service time might work and that's a pretty good segue into the current state of things where, you know, here we are making a podcast to produce our own content because there's, there's a roster freeze and there's a lockout and, and, you know, the news isn't just quite flowing. So a perfect uh, avenue for our creativity and our beautiful voices to, uh, to reach the, uh, the, the media scape, but not exactly ideal for, you know, the baseball fan base at large. So there was, you know, thankfully, I guess, a, a meeting, I believe last Thursday, um between the players uh, union and the owners and this one from what i understand lasted a bit longer than the uh, the seven minutes that the uh, the previous ones did um and so one of the big sticking points in uh, in this lockout is the uh, the uh, cbt tax essentially a luxury tax the collective bargaining tax that's what it's called right I would assume so. Yeah, the C- there's a lot of C and B's thrown around. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. what we'll, Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll double check that. But it's essentially, you know, it's a luxury tax. And so what the sticking point now is that it currently sits at $210 million. Uh, the players want to bump that to $245 million. The competitive balance competitive tax. Balance what is it? Competitive, competitive balance, balance tax. Ugh, too much collective bargaining and competitive <laughs> balance. Okay, so the competitive balance tax, and it, it, what it does is, right, it operates as a soft salary cap. You know, there's very few teams apart from, you know, the Dodgers, maybe the Yankees, they'll come close, but no one is really willing to break that and then pay the extra tax on the dollars that they exceed. Uh, so right now it's sitting at $210 million, 
players want it much higher to 245 million. Uh, the owner said, okay, we hear you and we'll increase it a whopping 4 million. So it was 214 million. They came back with, uh, that was not received favorably by the players. And so, you know, it didn't look like there was much progress made at that meeting among some other things that they discussed. Yeah. I think that's, there's a lot of core economic issues that were, that phrase is getting thrown around a lot or two. There's a lot of buzz phrases. We'll, we'll, be mentioning a lot when it comes to the CBA, but core economic issues. And that kind of seems like one of them because you look at the other major sports, especially like basketball and hockey, and that that salary cap really defines the maximum contracts. And baseball will argue it's not a salary cap, but it essentially functions as one. So the players, in order to get more money, in order to get higher salaries, are going to want that to go up. But you kind of mentioned that there's some teams who are willing to push up against it, go over it every so often. The Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, I think, have gone over it in the last couple of years, too. And that Yankees and Red Sox are two teams that, unless there's big division uh, realignment or something, are going to be very important for the Blue Jays. So if that luxury tax goes up, and I think we can both kind of function, at least in the short term, under the assumption the Jays are not going to be one of those teams that are going to be pushing above the, the competitive balance tax. I think they, they might in their most expensive years, go right up against it. I don't really see them going above it. But if they raise that uh, competitive balance tax, that's going to be more money for the Yankees and Red Sox to spend. Uh, if they completely change the format and make it so the penalties are less, maybe the Jays become one of those teams. Maybe everyone starts going over it. Or if their competitive balance payouts to each other, uh, yeah, the these economic issues and what they do with that is really going to define the competitive window for the Blue Jays. And especially what the AL East looks like for the next five years. Yeah. Yeah. Barring any, you know, Miami Marlins switching into the AL East or any surprise moves like that. Um, yeah. The Dodgers are on pace, I think, to break the, uh, the tax for the fourth straight year or come pretty close to it. But for, you know, a middle tier spending team, but also a little bit higher in previous years uh, since, you know, the dark ages of 2019 and the uh, that those Jays teams, they've spent quite a bit more, uh, in 2021, they're up at 147 million. So quite, you know, a ways to go before hitting that tax threshold. Um, so they don't consistently touch it, like you said, but you know, they, they may come close. And that's also, you know, if there's a, uh, a bow or, a, or a Vlad mega deal, uh, coming soon, you know, before 2026, when a lot of the contracts come off the books, uh, that could really push them against it too. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, I completely agree with you, your point there. And speaking of those Bo and Vlad mega deals, I know Shai Davidi from Sportsnet wrote a, a big long read on those. And I couldn't help but think, and I know we've talked about what potential changes to service time would do for that. It kind of sounds like that's one of the, the issues that they're all kind of batting around very different and creative ideas. We don't really know what that would look like in a new CBA there's been the, when you get to age 29, you become a free agent, which I'm sure the Blue Jays would love for Vlad Guerrero Jr. That means they have him for another like seven years, basically six or seven years, or it could be five years after five years, you hit free agency, which is another idea that's been batted around by the union. So that would be a little less good for Blue Jays fans that want to see Vlad Guerrero Jr. locked up for, or as a Blue Jay for a long time. But there's also kind of the elephant in the room that no matter what this service time comes down to, or no matter what the union and, and the players association or, and yeah, the union, the players association and the owners kind of agree on, there's one way to keep these guys blue Jays for a long time, which is 
paying them both $300 million and making sure they're Blue Jays for the next decade. So it's kind of interesting that the service time will impact the Blue Jays. Some of these guys could be grandfathered in, but there's an easy button to click to keep them Blue Jays no matter what. Mm -hmm. Spend, spend, spend. Um, and, you know, so far the, the Atkins and, and Mark Shapiro regime has been willing to hand out these massive contracts, right? Um, so there is, you know, there's some optimism. I would say if you're a Jays fan and you're worrying, you know, uh, are we going to lose one of them? Are we going to keep them both? You know, is it going to be like the free agency that we saw with Robbie Ray and, uh, and Steven Matz and Marcus Simeon, where you had like this trio of guys that, you know, were beloved by the fans, but, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes the financials don't work out. Uh, I guess in this case, though, the Jays obviously have a, a massive head start in terms of time. Uh, Bo, Bo is not a free agent until 2026. Uh, neither is Vlad. Um, and, and that is assuming that the current CBA stands. Um, and then, you know, Springer and Ryu and Gosman will all be off the books by then. So there will be, or Gosman and, and uh, I believe Springer might be in their last year in 2026. Um, they'll be all off the books, which will be nice. So there'll be a little bit more, uh, I guess, room to, to, to throw a, a backloaded contract in there. It's really, I think, what it, it could come down to is buying out through the arbitration years. Um, but in the last few years, we've seen some pretty lucrative precedents uh, set by, you know, young phenoms that are in similar situations. There may be super twos like, uh, like Vlad and Bo. So in, in 2019, it was Acuna's deal. And that was eight years, uh, $100 million, And that looks just like an absolute I'm sure they would happily take either of Vlad <laughs> or Bo on that deal right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And then we saw the big one in 2021 um or or 2020 I, my memory is brutal but uh tatis's 14 year a 340 million dollar deal now that's a lot of term um then toronto may not be comfortable giving but you know with someone like bladder uh with someone like vlad or Bo, who are still really young you know you could maybe come to that concession and then uh, uh wander franco that 11 year 182 million dollar deal that's another one that the jays can kind of uh base i guess uh, uh, their vision for what, what these contracts might look like on. And then of course, when Juan Soto gets his contract, that may change things too. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the Tatis one is probably the one I'm looking at as like the most direct comparison. The guy who's kind of been in the MVP conversation for his first couple of years has really shown he's a superstar. It, and it's also relevant that he's the son of a former big leaguer. Like it, these guys, Bo and Vlad, both had pretty decent upbringings. They're not guys who are scraping for pennies and need to uh, support their families ASAP and aren't going to be able to feel satisfied living on the $500,000 they've made on their rookie deals. Uh, they obviously are going to want to get their, their worth. They're not going to take a deal less than what they deserve. And, and no one, no player should do that. So it's kind of an interesting situation. But yeah, I look at that Tatis deal. That seems like a direct comparison. But yeah, you mentioned it, the term. That's something this organization has never done. They have never even come close to 14 years. They've never come close to 10 years. So it'll be an interesting test of, are they willing to kind of become this modern baseball spending superpower? Are they going to be willing to draft the superstars, nail their draft picks, and then pay them like they're worth? It's kind of, it's interesting. Maybe they don't stay Blue Jays forever. Maybe they kind of stay with these five or six year deals that they're comfortable with, but if you're ever going to give that money to anyone, it seems like you should probably be giving it to Vladimir.
Yeah, that's what I would say. You know, how many 19 year olds like like Vlad when he came up, have you seen, you know, produce this quickly or, or do what he did this past season, right? Like he is truly, truly uh, has the potential at least. And, and people still believe that he's just, you know, scratching the surface, right? At, at, at that essentially an MVP level uh, season in 2021, if it wasn't for Shohei Otani. Um, that's pretty dangerous to think about. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's If you want to buy out these arb years, you're going to want to do it soon. Because if he keeps producing like this, and same with Bo, like Bo's also had a couple really good years. Uh, if they keep producing like this and they keep getting closer to free agency, no matter what they think about staying long-term in Toronto, it's in their best financial interest if they're not signed to the mega deal in a couple of years, just to wait it out, get to free agency, just for leverage, just to see what's out there. These, I think it's Marcus Semyon in, in a couple of interviews has said when talking about the CBA, that free agency is like the biggest accomplishment for this player union. The, the players have earned the right to go to free agency. And so if Vlad and Bo get close, they've earned the right to see that through. Uh, the Jays managed to keep Jose Barrios from exercising that right. It's going to be a little more expensive to keep Vlad and Bo from exercising it. Yeah, yeah, you 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 were there at that press conference when Jose answered questions about that. Uh, you know, like it, especially someone like him. You know, debuts young, and, and you're a pitcher, and you work hard, and you know now you have this massive chance. You know, you have the chance to cash in, uh, and within just a couple months, you know, Toronto Toronto convinced him or courted him, uh, as it was put to uh, to to stay in the city. Uh, do you think maybe Bo and Vlad will consider, you know, the experiences they've had in Toronto and, and how they like the organization, the city, the fan base? Do you think that may play into, quote unquote, like a hometown discount almost? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you can take that Barrios press conference and he's sitting up there and he's saying all the right things. And he clearly really liked Toronto and is really comfortable with his family living in Toronto. But I think that's kind of like the baseline. Once you tick that box, once you're like, yeah, I would be comfortable being a Blue Jay for the next five years, 10 years, 14 years, if the deal's that long, that's just a box that's checked. Then it's the, it's the money that's going to speak. I think Vlad and Bo, everything we've seen, they're very happy in this organization. They really like the team. They love playing in front of the fans when possible. Uh, but it's ultimately going to be how, how many zeros are on the check. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, Shy in his article, he mentioned uh, uh, Corey Seager's contract at, at 10 million and 325 as a comparable for Bo. Is that, you know, that, that strikes me as quite a bit of money. Um, I think, you know, there's maybe thoughts that, that you would want to lock up Vlad. Maybe you'd want to lock up Bo more. I mean, they play different positions, obviously, at shortstop. Bo maybe has a little bit more to give defensively. Um, but, you know, at, at 10 years, 325, is that, that seems like it, uh, it it fits the the bill for for Bo. Yeah, like if I'm giving that to him today, I might do that. But then once you start getting closer and closer to free agency, he gets a little bit older. Those ten years start being a little more backdated. It gets interesting, and I think mm -hmm. if he's going to get to that Seager tier, we really need to see a strong year from him next year. Uh, he was really good last year. He's kind of this borderline all star is kind of what tier he showed he's in. He was an all-star last year, but if he takes the step into like MVP candidacy, like Corey Seager was for a few years before he got that payday, I think it's well worth it. I think uh, what you do now is you talk with Vlad and Bo and you see where they're at. And especially once the CBA uh, gets locked up, we, you kind of know how much time you have to work with. You see what you're working with, with like a guy with Teoscar Hernandez, because 
it's going to be kind of hard to sign all three of those guys. So I think Teo will kind of dictate uh, where you lead those discussions with Vlad and Bo if you front load a contract with them. But yeah, I, not my money. I'd happily watch uh, Bo sign a $325 million contract. It's a commitment for someone else to decide on, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, well, the service time is definitely the big one to watch for sure. I think that's, you know, when people, you talk to people outside of baseball and you're like, like, oh, Vlad's a superstar. You know how much money is he making? And you're like, oh, yeah, him and Bo combined are making like $1.2 million. Everyone's like, like, what the hell? Like, what, what's this game is broken, right? But, you know, I, I guess there, there's precedent and there's, there's something like over 50% of uh, players in the league are playing on, 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 the, on the minimum. I don't know. I wouldn't quote me on that as, as, the, uncertain, as the certainty drains from my voice as I say it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely one to watch. And the other topic to watch uh, is that the owners want expanded playoffs, right? Um, we currently have 10 teams that make the playoffs uh, in, in baseball, and the owners want something like 14. Uh, that seems like like quite quite a, a stretch. It seems a little bit much, especially when, you know, there's concerns, especially on the player's end uh, with with tanking and, and ways to improve competitiveness. Um, what are your thoughts on maybe adding a few more playoff teams? Yeah, I think it it's almost inevitable that we're going to get the NLDH, which we might talk about later and the expanded playoffs. It's just kind of a question of, at least in terms of playoffs in what capacity and how we're at 10. Now, some people want 14. It kind of seems obvious to me that they'll settle in the middle at 12, but uh, what the format looks like could be interesting. And it is kind of interesting on face value. You talked about competitive balance, adding more playoff teams mean more people will be in the race which means more people could be buying, but there's also a little less incentive for a team like the Blue Jays, who right now kind of feels the need to try to win the division. You feel the need to try to compete with Tampa and New York and Boston and be better than them to secure your spot in, in the division series. If they add another couple playoff teams, you might not feel that pressure to be a 99-win team. You might be a little more comfortable being a 91-win team. So it can go both ways on competitive balance. I also think the interesting thing for the Jays is I wrote about this a while ago, just in kind of passing in an article and claimed it as a good thing for the Blue Jays. Like it negates the AL East a little more in the long term. You don't really have to worry about having to beat at least two of, or at least one of the Red Sox, Yankees, and Rays every year, uh, and probably two of them. But some people kind of push back that this Blue Jays team is so good and should be so good that. They don't want more playoff teams. They want the Jays to just get into the current format and have an easier road to a World Series. So I kind of see both arguments after that being pointed out to me. And it, it'll be interesting when there is the, I think, inevitable expanded playoffs, how it how it uh, factors for the Blue Jays. And uh, maybe just a year too late for the uh, for the playoff expansion yeah. with how, how they really could have used it last year. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, yeah, I, I guess I do see the argument for both. You know, there's something exciting about October baseball in the sense of how exclusive it is, right? Like you play 162 games and, you know, you get, well, then there's the one game wild card, which we can certainly talk about that quite a bit. And who knows uh, if, you know, if that would stick around, I imagine it would, if there was expanded playoffs just to keep things concise. Uh, but it's certainly something to think about. And from what I've uh, read, Ben Nicholson Smith, oh, goodness, words, Ben Nicholson Smith from Sportsnet, he uh, he did a nice uh, a review story sort of on uh, where things stand with the lockout right now. 
And he mentioned that uh, the players, you know, it's kind of obvious, like you said, that the game is trending towards an NLDH and uh, expanded playoffs. He mentioned that this could be something that the players could use as a bargaining chip to maybe get, you know, a, a little bit more of what they want, right? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of interesting because expanded, expanded playoffs, you can see the players wanting it, but really why the owners want it is because you stop getting paychecks at the end of the regular season. So for the ownership side, all the playoff revenue is essentially free. Uh, they often give a, a chunk of it back to the players in some sort of payment formula, but they don't, I don't know if they have to do that. So it's, it's a lot of gross revenue for them. And so the more playoff games is the more revenue. So the players can use that chip for sure. And NLDH also kind of functions the same way. Owners want their pitchers to be safe. They want their, their pitching assets to get hurt less. Players want more jobs, a bunch of NLDH jobs or more jobs. So they're just so obvious for both sides to kind of come to an agreement on that, that I hope they both don't argue over like, oh, you want this. So you got to give us this when it's like, I think we both want all of these things. We should just shake hands and move on to the core economic issues. Yeah, because surely neither of these unions could be petty at all, right? No, no. They seem like really good friends. Yeah, I think they yeah, get along they, well. They've yeah. Been, yeah, amicable. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you mentioned yeah the NLDH. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to see guys get up there and swing wet newspaper like pitchers. But, you know, there is that, that, that one, you know, that one, that Bartolo Cologne home run or that, you know, that Madison Bumgarner double in the gap or Granke getting a, a pinch hit single, you know, that, that, that's, that's pretty exciting, but I, I don't think it's worth watching, you know, 400 Bartolo Cologne at bats for that one he connects on. So uh, yeah, I, I think I, along with most of the consensus in baseball, I would hope, uh, be favoring the NLDH. Yeah, and I think it's we're really killing the segues today. This is a perfect segue because the NLDH, you don't really think about it on face value of benefiting the Jays. But if we're going to talk about potential trade chips for the Jays moving forward to address some holes, uh, adding a bunch of DA spots in the NL will add a bunch of new suitors if they want to trade Alejandro Kirk. They got Gabriel Moreno coming. And so if they need to move a catcher, a guy like Kirk's still got a lot of prospect pedigree and a lot of value. And maybe he's not an everyday catcher. I think he is getting better at catching. And the reigning AL Cy Young pitcher, Robbie Ray, loved throwing to him. So that should speak enough about the fact that Alejandro Kirk can get behind the dish and he can catch. But if people want to split him time at DH, a bunch of NLDH spots would be great for that as a trade destination. Mm -hmm. Alejandro Kirk is really interesting because he's he's a great hitter and he's proven that he can be a great hitter you know from such a young age and him stepping up with such a little minor league experience uh right to the majors and you know hitting pretty well as a rookie um he can hit and he can hit well and he can hit for contact and he can hit for a bit of power um but the defense is always the concern and i think that just comes with you know his body type it's a bit unconventional and you know people are projecting it won't age so well so you know i i get some kind of feeling that maybe the most valuable thing about Kirk is his potential and where people project him, right? He's good now. Um, you know, people don't know how long that'll last. And with the Jays catching depth, yeah. And, you know, the top prospect in the organization and Gabriel Moreno coming up soon, it does make a lot of sense to move Kirk. Yeah, he, we kind of prepared three or four names of trade chips that we were going to banter about before this. Kirk was the number one on my list just because what you can get for him I think is the most of any of the guys I kind of looked at as realistic trade value. 
I think you can look at some of the other names on my list. I'll spoil it. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is on it. And if you find a good fit for him, you can get a great return. But Kirk is kind of uh, the type of guy who he fills a very rare need. If you need catching, it's really hard to get it. You look at Cleveland made playoffs trotting out Roberto Perez for a half a decade. And he is a very good defensive catcher, but he does nothing at the plate for you. He, he's not going to hit anything. And then I think it's Jacob Stallings is Miami's catcher right now. Uh, they just traded for him. Another really good defensive guy, but not a guy who's going to hit for much either. So uh, I think the two teams I saw as potential destinations for Kirk are, are the obvious ones, Miami, if they want to add kind of a pair with Stallings and they get that DH spot to use or Pittsburgh. The kind of the interesting part for me is you get the, the ideal pitching uh, returns for Kirk in terms of like Pablo Lopez or Eliza Hernandez from Miami. I don't see a great return coming from Pittsburgh. I don't think they're going to get Brian Reynolds for Kirk. So then are you trading Kirk for a reliever? I'm not sure. I think you might be kind of waiting it out to see if a catching need uh, comes up for somebody. Mm -hmm. And so you and I were made aware of some reports during the season uh, after the trade deadline had happened, but the talks happened at the deadline between um, the Guardians and, and, and the Blue Jays in which Kirk was a trade chip uh, in a potential move for Jose Ramirez. And from what I understand of that report was it was Kirk, um, one major leaguer and, you know, multiple uh, higher tier prospects. And from what we gathered, it was Toronto that turned down that deal. Does that, does that surprise you? Or do you think like that that's, that's not far off for what, you know, someone like Jose Ramirez, who is obviously one of the, the better players all around in baseball or in the American league, at least he's an MVP finalist. You know, he's a switch hitter. He plays third base. He's the pretty much the perfect fit for Toronto and what they need right now. Does it surprise you that maybe the Jays weren't, you know, willing to go all in and offer that kind of package? Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting if that was, Elvis Martinez and Gabriel Moreno as those two top prospects, it's pretty obvious why they said no. If it's guys a little lower down on that top prospect list, I definitely would have listened to that. I think it's you're if you're going to get Jose Ramirez, who's also cost controlled, like you listed all of the good things about him, and he's only making like $12 million for the next couple of years, he is the dream fit for a team that needs kind of like that cost certainty can use a cheap superstar. Everyone could use a cheap superstar, but uh, I'm sure the Jays would love one as well, but I, I would, if you're going to move Kirk and if you really trust Moreno and you really trust Danny Jansen in the short term, which I think the blue Jays really do, uh, you're going to want to move him in that kind of deal. You're going to want to move him in a deal that ups the blue Jays ceiling. And there's no one on the trade market right now who would up their ceiling more than Ramirez. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Danny Jansen. And I just want to touch on that because from an outsider's perspective, you know, you might look at the seasons that he's had, um, and maybe kind of question why the Jays, you know, are, are, are so committed to him. But I mean, and you can maybe speak to this, but once you get down there and this was our first season on beat coverage, but once you get down there, you could, you just get the sense that, you know, this, this organization trusts Jansen and they give him, they give him chances and they love the way he works with the pitching staff. Um, and so I really do think, you know, he is a legitimate, you know, starting option and they see him that way. And he's almost just the way the timeline is working. He's almost the perfect carryover to when someone like Moreno is going to be ready. Right. You know, Jansen, he, he can hit for power. He can hit, you know, he struggled with consistency, right. And contact, but um, they value him defensively. He, you know, he's, he's an excellent uh, game caller. Uh, he's, he's great at blocking. I would say he's one of the better, probably the best at game calling and blocking. 
Uh, he doesn't have the best arm. I would maybe say Reese McGuire, it would be close. Um, but you know, he's valuable with the pitching staff. And like you, uh, you, you wrote a story on earlier this off season, he's going to be pretty important to another new blue Jay in, uh, in Kevin Gosman. So I think, you know, the catching situation is, is interesting, but it opens the door to, to trading from that valuable position and bringing in greater needs. Yeah. And I think it's, you kind of nailed that they value him for all of those kind of, they're not intangibles because you can uh, quantify them. So, but we're, they're a little hard to quantify in kind of the public space. Like blocking is a pretty new uh, statistic that people are trying to measure, but I think it's kind of the blue Jays value Danny Jansen a lot more than they would get for him in a trade. And that's the type of asset you don't trade because you're just never going to get the value back. You think you should. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I agree. He's the perfect guy to kind of keep as the starter for this year, the platoon with Moreno next year, and then kind of transition into a backup role if Moreno becomes what people can think he can become. Uh, in terms of the other trade uh, chips, if we want to transition to them, the number two guy on my list I kind of teased is another guy who the Blue Jays clearly really like. He's another guy kind of like Jansen who's had streaks with his bat. He, he's run into a lot of home runs, but he's also another guy who is maybe coming from an excess. And I think that's maybe a trend on my trade chips list is they got a lot of excess positions, which is a great thing to have, but it's, if you're going to make a big move and you want to move from an excess, I think Lourdes Gurriel Jr. from the outfield would be the guy to probably move. I, I think Randall Gritchick is a guy who a lot of Jays fans might be comfortable moving more than Gurriel, but I think if you're going to try to make a splash, uh, Gurriel is the guy to move. Was he, uh, did you give him any consideration at all in terms of trading? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this it's kind of like this cliche, like, four or five guys on the Jays that you see in all the mock trade proposals, but it's true. You mentioned the trading from the excess, you know, that the Jays have a good roster, but it's not exactly positionally aligned properly. Right. And it's very right-handed. So Lourdes, yeah, for sure. He is somebody who's a valuable trade ship, right? He's, he's only 28. Uh, he's, you know, got some control. He's a free agent in 2024. He's inexpensive. You know, he's, he's, Overall, the numbers look good as a hitter, but he is very, very streaky. <laughs> and we saw that this year more than anything. The first half of his season was uh, subpar. And then, you know, he wound up hitting, I believe, four grand slams. And he was he was critical, really, in, in that September month to uh, to there to the Jays push to be right in the postseason race. Um, yeah, so th- I, I, I would feel comfortable, I think, moving him um, for a better positional fit at third base, maybe another starting pitcher, but you know, I, I think it has to be right. He would be probably one. I, I would be more put it this way. I'd be more comfortable moving somebody like Alejandro Kirk uh, versus somebody like Lourdes Gurriel. I just, you know, I, I, I like his bat. I like his, you know, you like as a fan, you like his energy. And I think he does play a valuable role uh, in that clubhouse, even just beyond the comic relief, which is what a lot of people see him as. So I, I think it would have to be, the right move like for for a starter like Pablo Lopez or someone like that or uh, in a package for for Jose Ramirez along with some 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 prospects I Guriel is a valuable trade chip and you know at the end of the day sometimes you have to give some to to get some uh and I think uh, Lourdes would be one of the tougher guys to part with but I think it's it's something that the Jays should definitely consider yeah I think it it kind of, we haven't, the interesting thing is we haven't really seen the trade market move this winter. It seemed mm-hmm. like everyone kind of dealt with their free agency or a bulk of the free agency prior to the lockout. And I get a feeling, and I think a lot of people around the industry are kind of 
looking at these potential trades because it seems like there's going to be a lot of work done whenever the lockout or hopefully when the lockout inevitably lifts. Uh, and so who knows whether or not these guys are in discussions, have been in discussions. It's kind of hard to know because no one's really done anything. You haven't seen any dominoes fall. A name that I know a lot of people are starting to get a little maybe too attached to is Matt Chapman from the A's, but they're probably going to want more prospects. I don't know. I think they're kind of entering a rebuild. So I don't know if they want a Kirk or Guriel as cost controlled as they are. Uh, so Jose, I keep going back to Ramirez. I know everyone keeps going back to Ramirez. Cleveland is a team, the Guardians. I got to drive that in my head. I'll keep saying Guardians so I, I don't slip up and not say Guardians going forward. But uh, the Guardians are a team that really likes those kind of major league, cusp major league guys who are cost controlled. And Guerrero and Kirk are both like them. So it, it seems inevitable if they're trading for Jose Ramirez, I'd be pretty surprised if at least one of those guys aren't in a package. But also, I would be not very surprised if they're both on the Blue Jays roster when we break spring training and when we get into the year next year. I think the Jays really like both of their bats and they have no reason to trade them for anything less than a great return. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's just such a weird time. There's just so much uncertainty, right? How, you know, when, when things open, is it you, you would assume it'd be right back to, to free agency and all those monster signings or of whoever's left. But yeah, the trade market is important in the Jays. You know, we're expected, you know, after the Gosman signing, expected to be big players in the trade market. Um, I think, you know, they had some strong prospect capital to build off uh, or to use as trade chips. Um, but, you know, now with everything thrown off, it, it gets a little complicated. And we've gone to Ramirez. We've gone to Lopez, two guys that uh, have been talked about quite a bit. But another guy who's really intriguing and I think, you know, maybe just as worth pursuing as Ramirez is Cattell Marte of the Arizona Diamondbacks. And you broke that down in one of your stories earlier. Um, what do you think of Marte as a fit? And what do you think the uh, the cost of acquisition might be? Yeah, I can't specifically remember. I did a bit of a deep dive into the Arizona system back when I was breaking down those potential trades. The things I saw were a need at infield in their prospects and a need potentially at some top tier starting pitching. Uh, in terms of starting pitching prospects, the Jays aren't particularly flush with them. I don't think they're going to pull an Austin Martin again and flip their first round pick in Gunnar Hogland that quick uh, because they need a next wave of pitching in Hogland. They're really hoping can be that. Uh, but a guy who is another guy on my list, I don't know if you were teeing me up for this on purpose, but it worked out quite well, is Jordan Groshans. I think everyone's very familiar with Moreno and Aurelvis Martinez, who are kind of the two top prospect names in the Blue Jays world right now but Groshans usually fits in third in most of those discussions and he's a guy who fills a need that the Jays have uh, it's not quite clear if he's going to be ready this year next year when he would be ready to come up and play shortstop or third base but if they can just fill that need right now or, or fill an infield need right now I think you got to really think about building a package for someone like Marte around a Jordan Groshans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Groshans was on my list. Uh, so you, you hit that. Um, you know, he does. He he's redundant. Seems like a harsh word, but when you when you look at it, you know, he he's he's a guy that you might have someone like him just above him on the prospect list in in Arelvis Martinez, right? A guy who is a shortstop but may end up playing third base. I mean, Arelvis is obviously quite a bit further um, away. And so I think, again, like Kirk a little bit, it, it, Groshan's value might be best in his potential and as a trade chip, right? And maybe not necessarily on, on the Jays roster. 
Uh, he's, you know, he's got good bat speed. He's a line drive hitter. Uh, he's talented. He's had okay power numbers. I think when the Jays picked him, they've been, a, they expected maybe a, a little bit more power output uh, from him in the minor leagues, but he's also dealt with quite, uh, quite a few injuries. So that, that plays into it as well. Um, again, you talked about, you know, if we see Lourdes or Kirk on the, uh, on the opening day roster, when things resume, uh, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if Groshans was still there uh, in, in the system and wasn't moved for some package coming back, but uh, it also wouldn't shock me if he was traded. Yeah, I think it's, and it's maybe this is because people are become, falling in love with Arelvis so much, but he's kind of the guy people are building these prospect packages around because no one wants to move Moreno. No one wants to move uh, Arelvis Martinez, but no one wanted to move Samian Woods Richardson or Austin Martin last year. And I think Blue Jays fans would be pretty comfortable with that trade now. So uh, it will be interesting because Cattell Marte, like Ramirez, these are both superstar cost-controlled people. These are not guys who their teams are going to be comfortable trading for the fourth best prospect in uh, a, a good, not great farm system. So they're going to be asking for Moreno. They're going to be asking for Martinez. It then comes down to if the Blue Jays can beat someone else's offer despite not giving them uh, one of those guys, I think it's kind of hard to believe that another team wouldn't step up and be like, okay, here's our number one prospect for Cattell Marte or Jose Ramirez. So uh, I find it hard to believe that they're going to be able to pry someone like that without giving up the top names. If they do uh, hats off to them. But I, I also agree that uh, Groshans could be on the team. He could be moved. And uh, the last guy on my list is maybe kind of, we've been talking about the big names, the guys who you're going to try to trade for the superstars. I'm going a little bit deeper and I'm, I don't mean to offend anyone with this comparison, but this is the type of move where you move a Riley Adams for a Brad Hand. This is the type of guy who I think you could fill a very clear need with a guy who we're mentioning, mentioning uh, redundancy. Uh, this is a guy who is a redundant or excess. I think Kevin Smith is an interesting name. You kind of got to consider capitalizing on the prospect value now for he, he came up to the big leagues had a 382 OPS in limited play. We know he's got the power in the minor leagues, but if someone else values him and values that potential and you're going to slide in someone else, like assigned Josh Harrison or simply Santiago Espinal as your third baseman, I think you can flip Kevin Smith for a reliever. They might need another back-end reliever, or you can flip Kevin Smith for a fifth starter. Uh, I think he's a guy who another team could value and use more than the Blue Jays at this point especially if they're going to address their base in, in terms of someone else. Mm -hmm. So Kevin Smith's a bit of an interesting case, right? Because we saw him uh, have some struggles in the minor leagues in, in years past, but have uh, a pretty strong uh, AAA year uh, in 2021. And, you know, he got the call up and partially my belief, because he's very strong defensively. And Charlie Montoyo has, has talked about that as, as one of the, he said, he, he told me at some point during the season that, the kid's got great hands. He's got great hands, uh, and Charlie had no problem putting him there at third base. You know, he even played in the outfield and watched him take all kinds of fungos in left field before. Um, but, you know, he looked a little bit lost at the plate uh, last season. You know, he does have the power, um, but, you know, the, the contact wasn't quite there. Um, so, yeah, I could I could see value in, in, in moving him, but I think you also got to consider – I mean, we are in a lockout, so there's a roster freeze, but depth options at infield, I think, still have some value. And if you look at how many infielders Toronto has left on their 40 man, uh, it, it, it's not very many. Um, so Kevin Smith, yeah, I, I think, 
you know, he's, he's a fringe guy that you could move uh, even in a package with another prospect around his level um, for, for a fifth starter, a reliever. I, I, I think there's value in that, but again, you know, this isn't, this isn't easy stuff, right? We're looking at the two main dilemmas, which is keeping him around. Um, yeah. They have Santiago Espinal, right? You talked about him, but he he's been, he's been solid and he's delivered, I think above expectations since he's come to Toronto. Um, but I, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable, you know, just rolling with him uh, for another 162. Yeah. I think it's Santiago Espinal. Everyone, I think a lot of fans got really attached to his production last year and he was great, but he was also great in a role that was kind of the perfect thing to ask uh, him to do. They gave him leash. They said, run with this role. And he met the expectations and surpassed them. I think if you're going to want to give him a bunch of playing time this year, you're going to want to keep him in that role. You can give him a little more responsibility, but you're not going to want 600 Santiago Espinal plate appearances. So I think trading a guy like Smith would have to come with another transaction, whether that be trading for Mike Moustakis, eating some of that money or something like that, uh, or signing Josh Harrison. That's, that's a guy who's been thrown around a little bit. Uh, I could see that move being accompanied with that, but I do agree. We, we can't uh, start trading away all the Blue Jays depth or else we're going to get fired from our theoretical GM jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've been loving all the benefits and the perks. So, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to, to renege on that. Um, do we have time for one more guy, do you think? Yeah, let's let's hear it. I'm through my let's, list, so I'll, I'll yeah. let you wrap it up with one more here. Let's let it rip. Uh, this is this is an interesting one, and it's 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 kind of a Twitter proposal. You know those from from the internet, and you know they can be pretty harsh on on proposals. I don't know if you you've heard about the feedback. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the guy I'm thinking about is Nate Pearson, hmm. right? And I think he has well, he certainly has a lot of trade value. Uh, he's a little bit of an older rookie. Uh, he's got the stuff. My goodness, does he ever have the stuff? It's about, you know, putting it together, staying healthy. Do you, and but Toronto has been, you know, they've doubled down and they've tripled down when, when we've asked them about, you know, what role do you see Nate Pearson playing? Do you see him being an important part of the future? Um, and they tell us every time he's a starter, he's going to be a starter. We're going to see him in the rotation. If he can do it, we like what we see from him. Um, you know, Toronto doesn't have a lot of a pitching depth, but some other teams may covet that, you know, quite strongly. So do you see Nate Pearson as a guy who could end up going in, in a big deal? Yeah, I think you got to find someone who values him for what he could be, not what he's shown he can be. And I, I don't think a lot of baseball front offices are in the kind of projecting people to overcome injury issues and in the paying full future value business. So I think you really got to find a good fit, someone who loves Nate Pearson and can really dream on Nate Pearson. I think you might be better served giving him another shot, asking him to go out and pitch 100 to 120 innings this year and then seeing where the value is after that. But also if he does that and he's great, you're not trading Nate Pearson. Now he's sick, like he's an amazing starter. So I do agree if you're going to trade him, now might be the time that the Jays consider it. I'm just not a huge fan of potentially selling so low on that asset. Cause I think everyone kind of knows what Nate Pearson can be. He's you stand next to him and this guy is like a gigantic, he is uh, a big, like kind of baby faced monster. Who's like, yeah, this is an ACE. This is like a traditional baseball ACE. He's going to go out there. He's going to throw hundred. This is what a baseball ACE has been for the last 30 years. And so I don't think you trade that asset at its potentially lowest value. I think you kind of give him a shot this year. And, but also if he, if he fails, 
uh, or it gets hurt again this year, then the asset value is even lower. So I'm kind of going back and forth on you here, but I see the argument for both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he mentioned how physically imposing he is, and that's definitely that something that stands out is, you know, us especially being uh, on the field there for the first time and seeing everyone, that, that stands out. We get dwarfed pretty quickly by those big guys. Uh, him and, and Alec Manoa, who, you know, maybe doesn't look as tall as he is, but my God, those guys are massive. Yeah, it's like you, you think about like, how do guys throw 100 miles an hour? Like I've thrown a baseball before. How do they do it? Then you stand next to them and be like, oh, I'm at a pretty unfair disadvantage here. I could use another six inches and another like 45 pounds on my frame. And then maybe I can get up there. Yeah, like guys, forearms are the size of my torso. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you can see that. Um, so, yeah, Nate Pearson, I guess you prefer the wait and see approach. And um, I guess I would be inclined to to. Agree agree with you unless you know the the return is is outstanding um and fills a positional need which you know there there's no indication that that deal is just flying out of nowhere and landing right in toronto's lap i think it is kind of interesting with another potential wait and see guy a guy that neither of us had on our lists and a guy that a lot of blue jays fans have traded on twitter already kevin biggio i think it's kind of interesting that we didn't mention him i think we're probably both coming from the same class that he had a really tough year last year in terms of production and injuries he'd be a guy I'm super, super comfortable just plugging in at second base this year and letting him have kind of a rebound here. Uh, I know a lot of people want to trade him, but I do find it interesting that neither of us mentioned him. Yeah. Biggio, you know, it was really a lost year for him, you know, from the beginning of the season, he, he didn't look quite like the guy from 2020. He had the, the KT tape on his neck all the time. You know, he was bugged with various back and, and, and neck injuries. Um, yeah, I, I would I would absolutely be inclined to give him another shot. I don't love the the third base experiment. And I think Toronto, excuse me, saw, uh, you know, th- they saw maybe what they needed to see out of him as a full-time third baseman. I think he profiles a little bit better as a second baseman, um, even with, you know, those occasional stints in, in, in the corner outfield. Um, but I think he's he adds really something, I think, unique and almost like, old timey baseball in his, in his plate discipline. Like he is one of the most plate discipline, plate disciplined hitters, not just, you know, on the Jays, but in, in baseball uh, in, in 2020 and 2019. And he's a left-handed hitter. And I just think, you know, if he can juice those, his on-base skills uh, and he can come around with, with the power and limit a little bit of the swing and miss, if he can be a guy that can be your traditional, you know, move him over guy at second or your get on base guy at the top of the lineup. You know, he can be there for when for when Toronto's big sluggers come around. Uh, and I think that's a role that has value uh, and it doesn't cost anything. He's already on the team and that might be more valuable than, you know, what you get in return for a trade. Yeah, I think I think I completely agree. I think they the Blue Jays might be in the getting players more like Kevin Biggio business, not in the the trading players like Kevin Biggio business for kind of all of the reasons you just outlined. I think that we've made it through both of our lists. We've we've traded away a bunch of guys who I think a lot of people hope the Blue Jays don't trade. I think all of these guys will probably be on the Blue Jays next year and have great seasons. I think we can agree on that and we'll be wrong on all of the potential trade status of all of them. Uh, but thank you everyone for tuning in to the first episode of Inside the Blue Jays podcast. We're not going to upload this regularly. It might not be a weekly thing. Uh, we might establish a weekly or bi-weekly schedule during the season, but uh, hopefully the next time we're talking to you, a collective bargaining agreement has been agreed to and we are heading down to Florida for spring training.